just want to remind you that today is a life group on-ramp day, and uh, if you're not yet part of one of our life groups, we strongly encourage you to become a part of one of our life groups, or alternately, to uh, form a new group, and if that's something that you would allow God to use you to do, uh, I'd love to speak with you. You have an insert in your program this morning that lists our current groups, and uh, we hope that you would choose today to connect to one. Uh, let me just say there, there are three legs to the stool as I think about our life groups. One is um, relational connectedness, and that we want everybody at LifePoint to have a place where they belong. And even in a, in a church that you would say, well, this is a smaller church, doesn't everybody know everybody? No, they don't. And, uh, and so uh, having a place to belong to where you know and are known, where you love and are loved, where you are, where you are accepting and, and are being accepted uh, is so important in our lives. And from the perspective of uh, the pastors, uh, life groups are just absolutely essential. We cannot be everywhere you are. Um, we try sometimes, but uh, we get hurt when we do. But um, you can be there for each other, and, and you can know at a level that uh, no one else knows. And so uh, we encourage you to do that. So relational connectedness, and then uh, secondly, spiritual growth. We want here, Here's what I realize as your pastor, that uh, what I try to do on Sunday mornings is to start something, you know, to instigate something. And, and that thing that I'm trying to instigate is that is you uh, being challenged by God's word, you encountering the Holy Spirit, and uh, and then in the life groups, uh, that's where the conversation continues and it evolves in that place. And and so we have a, a life group study that I prepare each week that corresponds to the sermons, and um, and my hope is that it's kind of a one-two deal, a one-two punch, Texas two-step, that. Uh, that we do the thing here on Sunday morning, and then we enlarge on it in our life groups, and and we pray for each other. We look at God's word, and uh, it's not a time of teaching per se. It's not a time when one person holds forth, but when we all have an opportunity to to interact around God's word. And then the third thing is shared mission, and uh, so our life groups are are missional groups, and and we often say we have said in the past, life groups are the missional arm of our church, because small platoons of people can get some things accomplished uh, in the community and in lives that a large group cannot do. So uh, we really, really hope that you will make a choice to be a part of of our life groups, um, get into one, lead one, uh, and if not, pray for one or more, because they're, they're what we're all about. In your program this morning is also a sermon notes form. And I hope that you'll take some notes this morning. Um, what we're talking about today is, uh, is is somewhat, I would say, technical. Is that a fair word? Um, There's some things that uh, I, I want you to really be thinking about today. Uh, this is not a light message. It's not a light teaching uh, because Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, is rarely light, um, but he's particularly heavy here. And I think there's some things that we need to come to understand. Today's message is the first in a three-part mini-series, I'm calling it, within our larger series through Paul's letter uh, to the Christians in Rome, uh, known as Romans. This mini-series is on the topic of matters of conscience. And the three messages will span Romans chapter 14, verse 1, through chapter 15, verse 13. 
And this morning we'll be considering chapter 14, verses 1 to 13. Then next Sunday, chapter 14, uh, beginning with verse 13 and going through the end of the chapter. And finally the following week, chapter 15, 1 through 13. And I should say by way of introduction that in my opinion, among contemporary Christians, uh, these are among some of the most under-applied chapters in the New Testament. Uh, My hope this morning is that we will capture at least a glimpse of the concern that that Paul addresses here and that it might have an impact on the ways that, that we relate to one another within the household of faith, the family of God. So let's stand and, as is our tradition, read today's text aloud together. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, let's uh, first talk about what this whole thing about the weaker brother is. We need to understand what is being said here. The weaker brother, or if you will, the weaker sister. In this passage, Paul talks about two groups of people, or two kinds of people in the church, which is the family of God. Someone once said, There are basically two kinds of people in the world, uh, those who basically believe that there are basically two kinds of people in the world, and those who basically do not. Uh, Nevertheless, in verses 1 to 2, Paul identifies his first kind of person as the one who is weak in faith. One who is weak in faith. The second is described quite thoroughly in chapter 14, but never identified until chapter 15, verse 1, as the strong And so the two kinds of people Paul is describing here are those who are weak in the faith and those who are strong in the faith. And again, we need to ask the question again, what does Paul mean in verse 1 by that qualifying phrase, in the faith? 
weak in the faith, strong in the faith. And it's important that we be clear that the weakness that Paul is trying to get at is not a weakness of character. He's not necessarily describing someone, for example, who is easily overcome by temptation. That's not where he's going. On the contrary, as John Stott put it, when the weak, what the weak lack is not strength of self-control, but liberty of conscience. So Paul's concern is for those who are weak, not in character, but in conscience. The weakness of conscience that he seems to have in mind is a person's lack of confidence that his or her faith permits them to do certain things. The weak Christian is a sensitive Christian whose conscience is torn by indecision regarding matters of conscience. In order to bring this home to today for just a moment, before we rejoin Paul again in the first century, let me ask you about your convictions. For example, what are your convictions about the use of alcohol? Is that okay for a Christian? What about the use of tobacco? Or, since it's now legal in the state of Washington, marijuana? What about vaping? What about the kind of diet that's appropriate or inappropriate for a Christian? I mean, do you lean more towards the keto diet or the Cheeto diet? (laughs) What about tattoos? How do we feel about that? What about the Sabbath? Should we be gathering to worship on Saturday or Sunday? Uh, Is it okay to worship on other days of the week? Call it good. Does it matter? What about the observation and celebration of days like Christmas or Easter or the Feast of Israel, for that matter? I mean, we've just spent a great deal of time and effort and some of us a lot of money celebrating the birth of Jesus. There is no command in Scripture for us to do so. There's no command in Scripture for that matter for us to celebrate Easter other than celebration of communion. That's the celebration of Easter. I remember having an elementary school teacher. I was shocked. You know, I'm just a kid, and I realized that my my elementary school teacher, for for religious reasons, felt that celebrating birthdays was wrong, which kind of made for a lousy year, you know, (laughs) in my opinion. Should you put up a Christmas tree or hang greens in your home? I mean, some people would argue that there's, and they're right, that, that doing that has pagan origins. Is that okay for a Christian? Does it matter? Have, are we able to disconnect that from the pagan origins, or, or are we stuck on that? Marcy and I have some Christian friends who didn't even put up a Christmas tree this year. They just arranged a few electric candles and a lighted garland in the vicinity of their fireplace and called it good. And I'm praying for their eternal souls. <laughs> Actually, I kind of envied them. It seemed rather simple. What about Easter egg hunts? Easter eggs, for that matter. 
pagan origins? Is it okay for us to do that? What about participating in trick-or-treating on Halloween night? What about observing that day in, in that way? There was a guy who used to attend LPC who said he turned out all the lights and hid with his family in the back room of his house on that night. And he was serious. What about how people ought to dress for church on Sunday mornings? What about what pastors ought to wear, right? What about how communion ought to be served and how often? You know, Jesus didn't specify. He just said, as often as you do it, remember me. That could go on, couldn't I? And you could think of some other examples, couldn't you? There, these are all matters of conscience. None of them are directly governed by specific commands of God. Yet each of them has the added potential to cause disunity and divisiveness in the church. And so each of us needs to come to a point of personal persuasion and conviction on these things. A distinctive characteristic of the believer who is weak in faith is that they regard as wrong some things which God's word has not explicitly declared to be wrong. I mean, we ought to be in complete agreement on what, on what God has commanded. We ought to be in agreement about what God has specifically prohibited. But we ought to figure out what's in the middle and allow freedom, freedom of conscience. Now, who were the weak in the church at Rome that, that Paul was you know, had in mind as he wrote these things, it's probable that they were mostly Jews. Steeped in the ceremonial aspect of their religious upbringing, who had come to personal faith in Jesus as Messiah, they had acknowledged him as Messiah. And it's entirely understandable, I think, that many of them might have been uncertain about how their new faith in Christ interfaced with their adherence to the Old Testament regulations. Their particular weakness then would have stemmed from a lack of clarity and confidence regarding their continuing commitment to, for example, Jewish dietary regulations. And certainly the observance of special days, the feasts of Israel. Those who came to faith in Christ from paganism might have had similar issues to work through from that angle. You getting the picture here a little bit? So who then are the strong? The strong are believers who embrace their new freedom in Christ, feel liberated, feel unencumbered by an overly sensitive regard for the restrictions that lie in the area of conscience. That is not to say that they ignore the dictates of their conscience but that they are not nearly as conflicted as are the weak when it comes to disputable matters. It's important for us to to note simply that the terms weak and strong are meant to be descriptive and not judgmental. They're statements of fact. Although there is assuredly 
a presupposition that's woven throughout Paul's teaching here that to be strong and not weak in one's faith is the preferred condition. Now in verse 1, Paul states what I'm just going to call the positive principle that really guides his whole discussion in verses in the verses in this chapter, which is welcome him. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Well, what's he saying? The word translated welcome here is a powerful word. Some translations give it the meaning to accept. So if you have a Bible open and whatever your translation happens to be, you might see the word accept. As for the one who is weak in faith, accept him. The English Standard Version, which we use here at LifePoint, it's not more sanctified or anything, we just like it better. uses the word welcome, welcome. To welcome the weak in faith, I think, at least connotes for us, much more than to just accept them, doesn't it? At least in the way we are accustomed to using the word accept. Often that that word uh, accept is used in a passive sense. And what I mean by that is that we often think that to accept someone can often be misunderstood as merely acquiescing to their presence, kind of putting up with them, um, affirming their right to be present, affirming their right to belong, allowing them their space, and from then on doing little more than tolerating them or coexisting with them. It's essential that we understand that what Paul commands here is not passive at all. It is overtly active. The word implies something infinitely more personal and relational than receiving someone into membership in the church and and including their name on a list. Instead, it means having first drawn close enough, spent enough time to gain knowledge of the individual that goes deeper than surface acquaintance, and in that way to have discerned something of their spiritual condition, to then embrace them, welcome them warmly and intentionally into the fellowship of believers, into one's heart, and into one's life. It implies the warmth and kindness and personal inclusion of authentic friendship and genuine love. And not just temporarily, but continually, persistently, stubbornly. And I just want to uh, simply insert here that this is among the reasons that we have and encourage your participation in a life group. Life groups are primarily about welcome and inclusion and genuine friendship. Here at LifePoint, we work hard at welcoming guests at the front door. One of the comments, the most common comments we receive from uh, visitors, from guests here at LifePoint is how welcoming and hospitable this church really is. And you are a very hospitable church. But that ought to be just the beginning of a much larger and deeper welcome. 
that develops and evolves and grows over time. We need to continue to learn how to further welcome each other into our very lives. We could say a lot of that about that, but I have to move on. Having stated the positive principle, Paul adds what I'm going to call the positive qualification, which is, but not to quarrel over opinions. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Again, that Greek word translated quarrel in verse 1 means often to pass judgment. To pass judgment. And the word translated opinions points to the internal debates, the anxiety-causing internal debates over matters of conscience that are going on inside the heart and mind of the one who is weak in faith. Sometimes that that word opinions is translated disputable matters. A matter of conscience is a practice about which God has not specifically spoken in his word. He has neither clearly forbidden it nor clearly commanded it. Paul is saying, welcome that person warmly and willingly and don't make the first point of order to try to correct them. Be sensitive to their tender conscience before the Lord. The Bible has much to say about the role of the conscience. And it's a, it's a sensitive topic in Scripture. Remember Martin Luther defined the conscience as that evil beast that makes a man take a stand against himself. But Paul's saying, give them time and space to work out the full implications of what following Jesus means for them. Personally, individually, specifically. And keep working on that for yourself as well. I think this is part of what Paul meant when he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Work out what God is working in. In verses 2 to 13, then, Paul points to four reasons why we should welcome the one who is weak in faith. And the first is this. He says, welcome him because God has welcomed him. Welcome him because God has welcomed him. In verses 2 and 3, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Now let me reiterate what I said earlier. Faith, in the manner in which Paul uses the word here in this chapter, does not refer generally to one's salvation or to their doctrinal persuasions, but specifically to one's personal convictions about what their faith allows them to do in disputable matters in matters of conscience. There's no implication here that the weak in faith are in any way spiritually inferior to the strong. The one who is weak in faith simply does not have the freedom of conscience to do certain things that the strong may feel free to do. 
So Paul says one person believes you may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. If I ate only vegetables, I think I would be weak. (laughs) Especially Brussels sprouts. Those are from the devil. In Paul's day, one of the primary reasons that some Jewish Christ followers chose only to eat vegetables was that when they went to the market to buy meat, they were immediately confronted with one of two problems. One was that they couldn't guarantee that the meat that was available in the market was kosher. That is, that it had been slaughtered and butchered according to Old Testament regulations. The other problem was that it was often true at least I've been told, I've read, that the meat available in the marketplace had previously been offered to idols. Quite often that was true. And that raised a conflict of conscience for many as well because they felt that by purchasing and then eating meat that had been offered to idols, they were complicit in the idolatry. And even at some level, they were funding it. So in order to avoid violating their conscience, the weak would avoid meat altogether and choose a vegetarian diet. The strong, on the other hand, were those who knew that God had granted granted freedom to eat meat that to an Old Testament Jew would have been regarded as unclean. They understood that idols were nothing at all, just carved images made of wood or stone. To them, meat offered to an idol was just meat. And meat is sweet and good to eat and quite a treat. And thank you, Jesus. Give me some of that. And so they ate all kinds of meat without their conscience accusing them at all. To them, Paul says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. The natural inclination of those who eat whatever they want is is maybe to look down on those who, for reasons of conscience, are unable to exercise the same freedom. Paul says, don't let your freedom create within you an attitude of superiority. The word despise means to look down on someone, to treat them with utter contempt. It, It actually means to treat them as if they were nothing. Act as if their sensibilities or opinions mean nothing to you. But he also says to the one who is weak, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So you can go both ways, can't it? A natural inclination of those who choose a more restricted lifestyle is to pass judgment on those who enjoy greater freedom. Sometimes the weaker brother or sister will condemn those who are enjoying greater freedom and actually consider themselves more mature, more devout, because they're more disciplined in their mind. And sometimes we can tend to elevate the weaker brother because he seems so devout, because He lived such a disciplined lifestyle in our eyes. 
It's so easy to say, what's wrong for me is what is wrong for everyone. And from there we may look at the lives of other Christians and say, well, that person has something in their lives that I don't have in mind, and so they must be in sin. In verse 3, Paul comes to his first theological bottom line. And I appreciate, you know, Paul gets a lot of criticism. He gets a lot of, especially in our contemporary culture. But Paul never appeals to culture for his teaching. He always appeals to God's word. He, He appeals to who God is and what he has said. See, we're not accepted by God because of do's and don'ts, are we? Are we? We're accepted by God because of the mercy and grace he has extended to us in Jesus Christ, aren't we? And because that's true, to reject or to exclude from our friendship and fellowship someone whom God has welcomed is to arrogantly elevate ourselves to a seat of judgment that is higher than God's. A scholar named Robert Mounts wrote that the best way to determine what our attitude to other people should be is to determine what God's attitude is to them. This principle is even better than the golden rule. It is safe to treat others as we would like them to treat us, but it is safer still to treat them as God does. The former is a ready-made guide based on our fallen self-centeredness, while the latter is a standard based on God's perfection. Good word. Next, Paul says, Welcome the weaker brother, because Christ died and rose again, and he is Lord. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. When I was a little boy, early elementary school, three years running, I kid you not, my teachers wrote on my report card something very similar. Three different teachers, three different report cards, same message. Jimmy is a bright child and a good student. However, he would do well to attend more to his own work and less to the work of others. (laughs) I love where Paul goes here. You don't get to attend to the work of others. You don't get to go there. You don't get to dictate or stand in judgment on the convictions of other believers. To pass judgment on another believer is to pass judgment on someone else's servant. Not yours. Not your servant. The Lord's servant. 
Each of us lives our lives for an audience of one, whether we know it or not. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, Paul says, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Remember what Paul wrote back in chapter 5. The sole means of our standing, yours and mine, before God is his grace alone, made available through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, he wrote, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by this faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in grace and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In verse 5, Paul adds to the discussion the the matters of conscience. the matter of observance of special days. And he probably had in mind the questions of Sabbath observance or special days of feasting and fasting and so on. We know that the early church began to worship on Sundays rather than on the Sabbath, Saturdays. Why? Because Sunday is the first day of the week. It's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What Paul is saying here is so very important. For any of us to be fully convinced in our own minds, regarding the exercise of our conscience in any area at all, would imply that we have engaged, or are engaged, in deliberative, searching examination of what God's word has to say about it. Paul's not encouraging mindless Christianity. He's not encouraging mindless behavior. Nor is he friendly to unexamined traditions. You get to have your own convictions. Just make sure that your convictions are rooted in the word and wisdom of God and not in human opinion or human tradition. Let each one be persuaded, fully convinced in his own mind. When you're fully persuaded, when you're fully convinced, then you can have confidence that you're honoring the Lord by the exercise of your personal convictions regarding the days you choose to observe, the ways you choose to observe them, the food you choose to eat, the food you choose to avoid, that which you choose to drink or not drink, And you can do it with a heart of gratitude, giving thanks to the Lord through Christ. Now before we leave this section, let's look again at verses 7 and 8. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and and of the living. See, Paul's anchoring his teaching here in the essence of the gospel. Because Christ died and rose again, he is demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt to be the Lord. Because he died and lived again, Paul says, he is Lord of both the dead and the living. For those of us who are in Christ, then the whole uh, of our living and our dying are to the Lord. 
In the exercise of matters of conscience, then, the question is always this. Does the conduct of my conscience with respect to my eating, drinking, or anything else reflect real conviction based on God's word? And does it reflect a deep awareness and acknowledgement on my part of Christ's lordship in my life? Third, Paul says, welcome him because he's your brother or she is your sister. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or why do you despise your brother? These two questions, rhetorical questions both, draw our attention to the conduct of our relationships within the family of God. They obviously combine for a pretty powerful one-two punch, do they not? Though Paul doesn't say it, we might imagine that the first is a rebuke to the weak brother for condemning the strong, and the second a rebuke of the stronger brother for looking down on the weaker brother. Neither activity, would Paul say, is appropriate. Both are the prerogative of God alone. This side of heaven, the family of God, is a pretty dysfunctional family, isn't it? I love that greeting card that says, let's put the fun back in dysfunctional. (laughs) Family of God is a dysfunctional family, but Jesus is coming soon. And so Paul writes finally, fourth, welcome him because we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. See, each of us is going to stand before God. You realize that? Looking forward to that? Woo-hoo! Notice that his jurisdiction is universal. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. So for us to pass judgment on one another is first of all presumptuous because to take for ourselves the role of judge is to usurp the place of God himself. And it is second of all premature because the day is coming when an infallible, righteous judge will assume that responsibility and exercise that prerogative in each of our lives. I'm out of time. Some of you might be glad about that. Four reasons to welcome the weaker brother or sister, just in review very quickly. Welcome them, welcome him or her, because God has welcomed them. Welcome them because Christ died and rose again, and he is Lord. Welcome them because he is your brother or she is your sister. Welcome them because we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, that's just the first part of this three-part series, and Paul has a lot to say on this matter of disputable things, matters of conscience. 
So we'll resume this discussion in part two next week when we're going to examine verses 23 or 13 to 23 of chapter 14. As I close, let me just say this. Join a life group, would you? Or form a new one. That's where all this stuff gets worked out in reality. I hope you will. Let's pray together. Lord, will you teach us what it means to welcome one another, to really embrace one another in our strengths and our weaknesses, in our foibles and our uniquenesses, as you have welcomed us in Christ. For your honor and for your glory. Amen.